Well, it is good to see everyone. We're starting a new series today. Maybe we can put the graphic up there. A new sermon series that'll last us through the end of April. 12 sermons minus one for Easter. Hard sayings of the Bible. We got a lot of feedback on our misquoted series. Uh, people just liked it. Um, and, you know, we have for years, you know, gone through books of the Bible, which I completely endorse that. I believe in that. We will return again to a book of the Bible. We've gone through a lot of books of the Bible. You know, we're committed to expository, verse-by-verse preaching of the Bible. But there are times when it is appropriate for us to sort of address some issues, all for the purpose of equipping us as the people of God to, you know, to, to have answers and to answer questions in our own mind and to engage the culture around us uh, with God's truth and the power of the gospel. So the goal for this series is to work through the most offensive texts in the Bible. And where we are culturally, there are a lot of things in the Bible that offend people. And one of the books uh, that I am relying on as a resource is called, Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, Paul Copan is a, he's a Christian, he's a scholar, and he helps, uh, he identifies the most, you know, sort of the, like the, the, the offending passages uh, that some people uh, see as an absolute obstacle to Christian faith. And we may think that, the, well, these are people who are not believers or people outside the church, but the truth is that a lot of us have nagging skeptics or questions about certain things in the Bible. Uh, the Bible's a big book, and it's got a lot of stuff in there. It's a book of books, many different books, many different genres, and there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand or grapple with or you know, deal with. And so <clears throat> today we've decided to start the series off with a topic that I have personally wrestled with for many years. Uh, the Genesis uh, 1 creation story. And, but I'm just going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and then we'll come back to our notes here for a minute. This is what it says in my Bible. This is the ESV, and this reflects most, most Bibles that we all have. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let me pray for us for a moment. Father, thank you for um, Highlands Church. Thank you for your people who are gathered worldwide on this Lord's Day to worship you. In different cities, different continents and countries parts of the world where Christianity is illegal and Christians are persecuted. We pray for our brothers and sisters abroad. We pray, oh God, that you would unite, unite your church in faith until that glorious day where you return, oh God, and usher in your ultimate final victorious kingdom. Touch our hearts today as we grapple with this very important but often confused and maligned passage of scripture in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I mentioned that one of the reasons why I, I don't know that Genesis 1, the creation story, is so much an offending text as much as it is a passage of scripture that divides people. And I'm just talking about sort of like religion and science. You know, uh, you meet people who increasingly today, when you say, you know, oh, do you have any church background? They say, well, I, I believe in science. As if that is their way of saying, I don't, I'm not with you, I'm not in your camp because I believe in science as if there is this, and many people believe there is this division between God and science and that you have to sort of plant your flag in one camp or the other. And I have wrestled personally through the issue of creationism versus evolution, how I should understand this passage of scripture here, the creation account in the book of Genesis, while also taking into account 
and considering a lot of the things that nature seems to teach us. Now, God has spoken to us. This is something the medieval church and the scholars of the medieval age identified that God, all God's revelation speaks to us through the book of scripture and the book of nature. And we could argue that they are saying two different things, that the Bible is telling us one aspect of God's truth and nature is telling us another aspect of God's truth. And God has given both as revelation to teach us things that are true. And so there are things we observe in the natural world, but one of the things that we as Christians who follow Christ have as a sort of under, you know, an, an underlaying foundation of everything we think and believe is that the Bible is authoritative. That there is authority in the word of God because it's breathed out by God over our lives, which means we're, we're never trying to accommodate the Bible to science or we're never trying to accommodate science to the Bible. And I think maybe this is where we get tripped up we either try to accommodate the Bible to science and say, oh, I can kind of see that here in the scripture, or we abandon it all together. And my hope today is that we will answer some of those lingering questions or sort of troubling ideas in our hearts over this issue. So I just want to share a little bit about my own story, okay? Um, I grew up in the church. I've considered myself a Christian my entire life. I haven't always been a great Christian my entire life, but um, I grew up in the church and for the vast majority of my life have espoused the position what some would call young earth literal six-day creationism, which is, hey, if there's a God, why should I have a problem if God is who he says he is that he could have in, a, in the very recent past over the course of six literal days, just boom, 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 and spoke the worlds into existence. And I think that is an absolutely valid thing to identify that if we believe in the God of Scripture, there is absolutely nothing God cannot do. Absolutely nothing he cannot do. And so I want to say right out of the gate that <clears throat> that view of Scripture is a valid view. That is a valid sort of deduction as we think about logically who God is and what God is. And although we're looking at sort of the vastness of the cosmos, I think it is absolutely fundamental to be able to identify that the idea that an infinite God, all-powerful, could have spoken the cosmos into existence in the space of six literal 24-hour days is an absolute valid interpretive option. I want to say that just like right out of the gate, all right? That's just, that's a valid interpretive option. And some people would say that has been the only way the church has ever interpreted the book of Genesis. I want to problematize that just a little bit because what we tend to do is we tend to import into the text modern questions, modern ideas, and a lot of our understanding of the Genesis creation account has been formed in reaction to sort of the modern scientific world, the modern age, we're modern people. Um, <clears throat> so I don't wanna cast doubt on any of that. I also wanna recognize that there are people here who have children who have not gone off to college yet. There are families here with young kids to different ages. And I wanna say to you families, whose kids have not grown up and left the home yet, my purpose this morning is not to usurp your authority, your parental authority. I want you to know that. My purpose here is not to say something that you have to go home and clean up. Now you may have to go home and have a discussion and say, what was Pastor Jordan talking about? Well, I think this is what he was talking about and I think this is what you know, he was saying. But my goal here is not to subvert your parental authority or get your kids to believe something you don't want them to believe or any of that. My purpose is to help you think about the Bible in a way maybe you never have before because we are modern people living in the modern age, often answering modern questions, but the Bible is an old book and the creation account was written a very, very long time ago to a specific people in a context. 
And so the way the creation story is written is informed by that ancient context. And I'll talk about that here in just a moment. Two things happened to me over time that started to press in on the way I think about the Genesis creation account. The first is I started to merely observe the natural world, which appears to be very, very, very old. And I don't think any of us can deny that. The world appears to be very old. The earth appears to be very old and the cosmos appear to be very, very old. And secondly, the second thing that pressed in on the way I understand the Genesis creation account is I started to learn more about the kind of literary genre that the first chapters of Genesis belong to. I started to learn more about those first few chapters of Genesis and to recognize, and I think for all of us, the better you become at reading the Bible, you start to identify that it's not all the same. Right? There is history, there is poetry, there's prophecy, there's wisdom literature. The Bible is broken up into all sorts of different literary genres. And Genesis itself is sort of broken into two halves. The first 11 chapters before you get to Abraham is called the primeval history. In other words, it's a time that we cannot really locate anywhere in history. I'm talking about before Abraham, which starts in Genesis 12 forward, the patriarchal history, the history of the patriarchs. But before that, this sort of time stamp on Genesis you know, 1, to, 1 through 11, we don't really have that. The Bible doesn't really give us a time stamp on those first 11 chapters, and that includes sort of the events um, <clears throat> of the creation story. Now, the people to whom Genesis was written, there is a time stamp. It was written to the emerging Israelites coming out of Egypt who needed to know more about their own identity as Hebrews. In Egypt, they knew a little bit about um, you know, their father Abraham, but they didn't know a whole lot. And they didn't know much about the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob served either. So some people look at the first few chapters of Genesis and argue that, as I mentioned a minute ago, that sort of literal six-day, 24-hour creation week is the only way to read it. And they might even argue that long before evolution emerged, that was the only orthodox view for Christians for millennia. And from their point, they would say it still is the only orthodox view to way to read Genesis. Others have looked at the Genesis account of creation and determined, no, there's absolutely nothing there that would compel a person to believe in a literal six 24-hour day creation week or rule out evolution as a divinely ordained process of God's providence in creating the cosmos. Again, I am not planting a flag in either camp. I am sort of inviting us in to think about these issues and to recognize that there are actually Christians across a spectrum on these issues. Um, my job today is not to endorse one view over the other, but to demonstrate that how one reads the creation account in Genesis is not, not, a test of orthodoxy. Rather, what we believe about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a test of orthodoxy. We've got a slide for that. So take a look, read, read that for a moment. How we read the creation account is not the test of orthodoxy. What we believe about Jesus is. Why do I say that? I say that because there are some very famous, popular pastor, teacher, theologians, some who I respect, who would make that the first line of defense and say, if you don't believe this view or that view, you cannot rightly identify yourself as an Orthodox Christian. When I say Orthodox, I'm lowercase o. I mean, like, you know, we belong to the faith, the historic Christian faith. And I just wanna, pro I just wanna say, that's I think that's wrong. The test of Orthodoxy is what we believe about Jesus his life, death, and resurrection. And I don't have a whole lot to say about this in my notes, but when you look back over church history, one of the things you can recognize is that some of the greatest theologians in church history also 
there, were, there was variance on their approach to the Genesis account. Augustine, for instance, the great father of the Western tradition, said, hey, I have no problem with six-day creation. Uh, what kind of days those were, I have no idea. So that's back in you know, the fourth, fourth, fifth century. I have no problem with the fact that the Bible says God created the world in six days. What kind of days those were, how long they were, I don't know. Uh, Augustine even posited that God could have spoken the entire cosmos into existence with one word and that the six days of creation were just metaphor or poetry. So uh, I want to sort of uh, disabuse us of the notion that we're only having this discussion now in reaction to evolution and science. That's just not true. Um, One of the things that's really important for us is that when you think about the church's historical confessional voice, you hopefully can think about the idea that a particular view of the creation account in Genesis is not enshrined in our creeds. For example, the Apostles' Creed simply says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker or creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The only thing the creeds do is essentially say, God was creator. I believe in God the creator. And I want to say, amen. That is what we should believe. I think we are compelled from scripture, we have to believe that, but it's a view of God. The creeds give us a view of God, not of the length of the creation days, or the process by which the creation happened. It's a declaration of one of the principal attributes of God, that he is creator. And to that, we should shout a hearty amen. God is our father, he is the creator. The cause of the cosmos, he's the one who ultimately brought all things into being, he is the one from whom all things flow and find their being and existence, and I think we absolutely have to embrace that and declare that proudly. You've heard me talk about in the past, I think, um, about kids who grow up often in evangelical homes who lose their faith in college. And there are a lot of hard uh, statistical numbers to back this up. Christian kids grow up in the church and they go off to college and they take a few biology courses and they become convinced that evolution is true and they've been told, either by their professors or by their parents or both, that you have to choose a side. You, you can either only believe in God and that God created all things or you have to... Be- you can only believe in evolution, but you cannot hold those things together. And they, they come home for Thanksgiving and they say, Mom, Dad, I, I, I don't think I believe in God anymore. Mom, Dad, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, I, I think evolution is true. And, you know, Mom and Dad, you know, you know are heartbroken, right? <clears throat> My own experience, this is not theoretical for me. I have four children. And I started to wrestle with this when my youngest, who is now in her third year of college, was in her first year of junior high. My oldest daughter went to a Christian college, didn't have to worry about that. My second oldest daughter went to a Christian college and then transferred to a secular college university, and sort of, that was okay. My son went to a Christian college, but I was pretty sure that my youngest daughter would not go to a Christian college. We had just moved here, and... And I started to see kids falling away from their faith as they went off to college. And I started to think through if this was really something that we should be teaching our children. In other words, were we setting our kids up to have a crisis of faith that, didn't, that, that was unnecessary? We were presenting children, our children as they grew up, with a false dichotomy. You can believe in God or you can believe in science, but you can't believe in both. And I just, as I just started to wrestle as a father, I just said, I don't think this is right. Uh, and to be honest, to be fair, there's plenty of blame to go around. So I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this, the biology professor in college is just sort of, you know, the nice, hey, whatever. You know, they are often very hostile. And one of the things often secular college professors love to do is completely obliterate the faith of their incoming students and shock the socks off of them and give them this false dichotomy or this sort of ultimatum. 
And I just want to say, you know, a pox on both houses. So number two, here's what I want to do. I want to give us a context for what Genesis is not. Let's see what kind of time we're doing. All right. Here's a con. I want to give us the context before we look at the passage again of what Genesis is not. The context is not the Roman Catholic Church. You know, for a thousand years, the, the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church was sort of the voice of doctrine in the Western world. You know, in the Eastern world, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, which broke off from the Catholic Church, you know. Uh, but the context for understanding Genesis is not the Middle Ages or the teaching doctrine of the Catholic Church. The context for Genesis, uh, for Genesis is also not the Protestant Reformation. We love Luther. We love Calvin. Calvin's my man, right? It's my boy. But there were things that Luther and Calvin, for all of their biblical expertise, did not know about some biblical archaeology and ancient texts in Mesopotamia and in, the, in Canaanite culture, the Ugaritic text, the Assyrian texts that have only been discovered in the last 70 years, which give us better sort of cultural insight into the type of literature Genesis is that they didn't have. So Luther and Calvin, I mean, incredible, incredible scholars uh, who offer uh, incredible insight, but they were not all-knowing, right? Luther and Calvin were not omniscient. The context for understanding what Genesis, uh, the context, understanding what Genesis is not, the context is not 20th or 21st century evangelicalism. And I'm speaking about the modernist fundamentalist controversy. You may not be aware of this, and I hope I'm not boring you, but you know, you might remember in the 1920s, the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know, a school teacher in Tennessee um, was brought up on charges for violating Tennessee's Butler Act which said that only the sort of biblical creation view uh, could be taught. And he was talking about maybe introducing that there was this other view called evolution was brought up on charges and it became a national spectacle. In fact, he was let off with a slap on the wrist, a hundred dollar fine. And it was, it was stayed. He didn't even have to pay it. They made a movie about it in the 1960s called inherit the wind. Who knows that movie? Yeah. Oh, so inherit the wind has this all-star cast. And it's a really good movie, but you know, of course, they lionize the lawyer for you know the def the defense lawyer for the evolution side, and they make the Christian defense lawyer look like a total buffoon, which is what Hollywood does, right? I mean, it's just it's just let's just name it. The Hollywood does, they just make Christians out to be total idiots and morons. Um, <clears throat> but there's there's a movie about it. So, 20th and 21st century evangelicalism has sort of spiraled outward in the trajectory of the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And that's not the context for Genesis. Genesis was not written in that context. And then finally, the context for understanding what Genesis is not is post-Darwinian Christianity, which is the sort of world we live in now. And just so you know, this any idea that sort of uh, evolution or evolutionism is a settled debate within the scientific community. Even atheists who are, you know, dyed-in-the-wool evolutionists have disagreements over about the whole thing. So there is no sort of uniformity or sort of monolithic position even in that world. And I think those are things we have to recognize that Genesis was not written in any of those contexts. The context of the creation account in Genesis, so if you haven't paid attention to anything I've said, I want you to tune in really clearly here, okay? The context of the creation account in Genesis is the pre-scientific world of the ancient Near East. That's the context. This is the world of Genesis' first recipients, the newly forming Israelite community. In other words, Genesis was given by Moses to the Israelites in the Exodus. As they were coming out of Egypt, they were grappling with their own self-understanding. Who are we and who is the God we serve? And Genesis is written for them. It's for us also, but in its initial context, 
It's written for this newly forming Israelite community to give them a deeper self-understanding of who they were in contrast to the other cultures around them, in contrast to the other creation stories that sort of flooded into their world. And there were a lot of them. There was the Egyptian creation story, the Canaanite creation story, the Mesopotamian creation story, the Sumerian creation story, and they all had different versions of how the world came into being and whose God was the most powerful because, of course, the God that created it all must be the one worthy of worship because he's all-powerful. Darwinian evolution is not the context of the creation account. The creation account is not meant to critique Darwinian evolution. It wasn't written with that purpose in mind. It was written to critique the cosmologies and creation myths of the surrounding cultures of the Hebrews and the Israelites. I hope that makes sense. Now, you'll notice what I'm doing here is I'm asking a big question, and the question I'm asking is this. Is the Bible trying to tell us something scientific? Something about the age of the earth? About human evolution? And I believe the answer is no. The Bible is not in those first chapters of Genesis trying to make a scientific claim at all. It's not pro-science, not anti-science. That's not its purpose. It wasn't written as a rebuttal or an endorsement of evolution, nor was it written in defense of literal six-day creationism. These are things that we bring as modern people living in a modern age trying to answer modern questions of the text. Now, I said a minute ago that that is a perfectly fine interpretive option that God created all things out of nothing in the relatively recent past in the span of six literal 24-hour days. But that is not the sort of thought world or purpose of Genesis necessarily. And obviously we as human beings have to, you know, and the church and, and, and communities and even individuals, we have to make interpretive choices. What I'm trying to do, again, I'll repeat it, is create a, an interpretive spectrum that I believe is all within the pale of Orthodox Christianity, okay? One of the ways that, we, that I can say what I just said is that <clears throat> our understanding of the Bible in its ancient context has grown in the past hundred or so years. We have been given greater insight into the cultural, the religio-cultural context of the ancient world in which the Hebrews lived, and that has a lot to do with understanding other texts. And you say, well, what does that matter? What do the texts beside the Bible matter? Well, one of the, thing, one of the reasons why it matters is there are a lot of similarities in, their, in the book of Genesis to some of these other accounts. And we would expect to see that because it would be like us living as a religious minority in a largely secular country like America. As we sort of describe things, we might use the language of our surrounding culture, right? So... Uh, some of the language our surrounding culture are words like, you know, tech, you know, and virtual and devices and like the whole culture uses that. And just because we might use that culture to describe our experience as Christians doesn't somehow mean that we are, doesn't invalidate. But one of the things scholars have noticed is that some of these ancient texts have a lot of similarities. And we recognize that the Hebrews were people, um, a religious minority living in a culture that influenced them in some ways, even at the very least in just the way that maybe they talked or certain words they used. Um, The medieval church and the reformers did not have access to some of the recent discoveries of the last 70 years, uh, including archeological material and things I've just mentioned that helped us discern the literary genre of Genesis better. Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying, and some of you are probably thinking I am saying this, and this is why at this point in my sermon, I want to declare this truth, okay? I am not saying that the church has read Genesis wrong for all these centuries. I'm not saying that. 
I also recognize that depending on where you are in this issue, what you're hearing right now may feel unsettling. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to unsettle you. I want to strengthen and reinforce your faith in the reliability of Holy Scripture. If I did not believe in the reliability of the Bible in my hand, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this job. I probably could not in good faith get up here preaching if I did not believe that what we have here is a reliable record of God's truth. I absolutely believe that. So do not hear me saying that the church has read Genesis wrong for all these centuries. What I might be saying is you may think that the church has always espoused a certain position on the creation account and that may not exactly be true or it may not be monolithic. We may have said, look, the church always believed this before evolution came along. Why are, we, why are we reacting to it now? And I say, well, actually, for, you know, 18 and a half centuries before Darwin, there was variance. Long before this position ever came up. Uh, again, I am not trying to somehow make evolution fit or not fit. What I'm trying to do is help us to read the Bible better. Now, John Walton of Wheaton College, who wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, he is an evangelical uh, Bible scholar who teaches at Wheaton. He's a professor of Old Testament. He's written a couple books, The Lost World of Genesis 1. There's another small book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And one of the things that Walton brings out is that um, as modern people, we bring something to the text that we are not aware of, and it's called a materialist ontology, and the ancient Hebrews would have had a functional ontology, and I'll unpack that, and I'm sorry for technical language. I'm just going to try to move to this quickly, but let me unpack it, okay? Ontology relates to being or existence, or how we understand our own existence or the existence of something, okay? A materialist ontology is a very modern understanding of things. So let me give you an example. Uh, a materialist ontology looks at a laptop and is concerned with the materials. What kind of screen is this? LCD or plasma? How do the, what, are the, what are the components used here? Or uh, what's inside of here? Well, there's a hard drive. There's like a processing chip. Really, and, and how do you make those? You solder them. What are the materials that, we, that are used? That's a materialist ontology. It is concerned with the material of the earth, the geology and the biology and those things, and sort of the astronomy of how all things came together. <clears throat> but Walton argues in his book that the ancient Hebrews would have had, because the story of Genesis is written in a functional ontology. In other words, they would have not cared about the materials and the process of how the earth actually formed. They were more concerned with, why is it all here? A materialist ontology looks for signs of scientific interpretation. What was the geological and biological process by which God brought the matter or materials of the cosmos and the earth together? Modern creationists and evolutionists tend to be concerned with geology and astronomy and biology. They're actually concerned with the same thing. One just says it happened over a long time. The other says it happened over a relatively short time. And in that way, they're approaching the text the same because they're concerned with the material origins of the earth. <clears throat> in contrast, a functional ontology looks at the text to determine not the how, but the why. And I would argue that this is vastly more important, the why of it all, the why God created the world, why we're here, why there is something and not nothing. A functional ontology wants to know what, what is the function that the creator gave to this world? Why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? And that tells us something about the creator in a way that a materialist ontology cannot. It gives us the meaning of life. When you approach the Genesis story this way, discerning it, the function of creation, not so much the scientific process by which the world came together, 
which was not the concern of the early Israelite community, and I would argue that Genesis was not written to answer scientific process of how the world came together, but rather the functional process. What is it all for? What's the purpose of it? It gives us the meaning of life in a way that a materialist ontology or a scientific approach never can, never could. It is not telling us anything about God's revelation that corresponds with science, not because it contradicts science, but because, as Walton put it, quote, if God aligned revelation with one particular science, it would have been unintelligible to people who lived prior to that time of science. And it would be obsolete to those who live after that time. And I would argue that whatever way we talk about the origin of the cosmos scientifically now in 2022 will look vastly different in 2532. It'll sound different. It'll, it'll be different. And so God was not concerned with locating the creation story in a particular way of talking that would be identifiable to a particular scientific way of speaking. That was not God's purpose. What God wanted to do was use the existing language and thought world of the community that existed at that time to communicate something vastly more important, which is that Yahweh, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, created all things. In other words, God communicated his revelation in terms that his immediate audience could understand. He spoke the creation story to ancient Israel in a way that fit their understanding of the ancient cosmic geography. And you know for a fact when you read other parts of the Bible that, that you're perfectly fine with this. If you're struggling with this, I just want to invite us, like, <clears throat> we do this with the Bible intuitively, knowing that the Bible uses certain kind of language that may not be scientifically precise, but nevertheless is telling us something that is true, right? Perfect example is, I think, Revelation 12. Part of the vision that John had is I saw a great dragon who drew one-third of the stars with his tail, right? And we mostly interpret that, well, that's Satan, and it may refer to a third of the angels falling with him. I don't know that any of us believe there is a massive reptile out there in outer space that is so large that he can play soccer with those massive burning balls of gas that are separated by millions and billions of miles. That's not the point. You see what I'm saying? That there is sort of poetic, figurative language used to describe something true. The point is true, but the language is sort of poetic, it's figural, it's symbolic. And I think I'm on solid enough ground to argue that the language of the first few chapters of Genesis in some way are elevated prose. It is not just a plain historical telling of an account. It is a sort of elevated language that borders on the poetic. Now, having said all of that, and I realize we're pressed for time, I want to look at Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Um, I, I want to tell you before I read this passage, uh, take it down real quick, please. Thank you. I had a lot of trepidation about today. I had some real fear. Because I've been wrestling with this for a very long time and I've gone back and forth and I, I, I want us to understand the Bible really well. And I also want, I don't want to, I, I want to not have us fighting about things we don't need to be fighting about as I've seen people's children fall away from the faith. It's broke my heart. Um, <clears throat> I also recognize that I don't know exactly where all, all of you are on this issue. This is an educated congregation. You're all smart people, I would imagine that many of you have sort of wrestled through these issues and some of you may feel like you don't have a hard position on any of these things, but, but others of you may feel like, this is my flag, I will die here, and others of you may feel like, no, this is my flag, I will die here. And so I had a lot of trepidation about this. I was sort of afraid. I do not want to alienate anyone and part of my goal today is I thought, 
why don't I do this uh, <clears throat> next week? I have a sermon on schedule, but if you have questions after today, give them to me. If this sermon today, this message today has raised serious questions that you want addressed, give them to me. And next week, if I get enough questions in, I'm not talking about you write me a 10,000 word manifesto. I mean, like you've got a couple questions. You got some questions about this, you give them to me. And I'll tell you what, next week, in our time for you know, our sermon time, we'll address them. We'll address those questions. Because I care. I care about us as a believing community. I don't want to alienate people. And again, I, it may seem like I'm taking a position. I'm really not. I'm trying to say that your brothers and sisters who may not believe in your particular view of Genesis are not heretics. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay, so, you know, you can send it to my email. Send it right to my email. Uh, and do it today, you know, because right now you may have all these questions. And some of the questions you may have is, Jordan, if we give up this line, you know, we're, just, we're letting the hordes right in the front gate of the compound. You know, whatever. That, you just send me the questions, okay? So I want to look at, <clears throat> before you put the verse up, Craig, I want to look at Genesis 1, 1 through 3 in a way that I believe is an equally valid way to read those first few verses. Now, uh, the ESV and the NIV and all those pretty much say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Torah and even some other Christian uh, um, interpretations of the original Hebrew interpret those first few verses like this. When God began to create the heaven and the earth, parentheses, the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the face of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water, God said, let there be light. And there was light. <clears throat> the first couple of Hebrew words in the very beginning of the Bible, Bereshit uh, bara, Elohim, you know, et Hashemayim, uh, et, um, it, it says, you know, it, it, in the beginning created God, heavens and the earth, okay? The first Hebrew letter can be interpreted as a, uh, um, a sort of like a preposition, in, in the beginning. It can also be interpreted as a um, adverbial conjunction, and there are different translations that say, some say in the beginning, which essentially means at the time when God created, and some say when God created the heavens and the earth. Now let me unpack this real quick. I realize we're pushing over time, it's 11-11, I'm sorry, but bear with me, we're talking about something super important, okay? <clears throat> From this reading, which is not an errant, heretical twisting of the original Hebrew, it is actually another interpretive option, okay, over history. I mean, this is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures from the 1960s, the Torah, there are other, the New English Bible, it is a translation of the Greek and the Hebrew, translates it this way also. <clears throat> Here is what I believe is a valid, another valid option of a way of reading this. We often think the very first creative act of God is verse one. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. But it is possible, and this is also a valid reading, that the first verse is prologue. The second verse is background, and the third verse is God's actual first creative act. So let me unpack it. When God went about to create the heavens and the earth, side note, the earth at that time was just a formless, voidless mass of darkness, and God's spirit was hovering over the water, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I don't know if what I've just done has hit anyone yet with the implications of that. Just don't say it, but raise your hand if you think you discern the implications of that. Yeah, what it's saying is, from this point of view, that when God went to create the earth, the matter was already here. That when God went about to give function and purpose 
to this orb, the matter of the earth, water and rock was already here. Now, the first thing you say is, how can you give up God creating the world out of nothing? Well, from that point of view, you would have to just take a step back and say, God did create everything out of nothing, the matter that was in the universe from the very beginning. Some people would say, well, that's the big bang, whatever you want to call it. God, all, everything came from God, but the, the, from this point of view, the idea that uh, the matter of the earth uh, pre-existed is not a big deal for someone who reads this particular reading. Um, and so if this view of Genesis is taken into account, um, it essentially says that the matter of the earth was pre-existing. And when God said, let there be light, um, he is essentially lighting up the existing dark ball of, of rock and water. And he's giving it his purpose. And it's quite possible. It's quite possible. I don't have a hard position on this. I don't have to. And the truth is, you don't have to. That's, that's the beauty of it all. I, you don't have to plant your flag on this. You can, you can wrestle with these issues. You know, one of the things I think that happens to us is we feel we have to choose a side on every single issue. And I want to say that is true with many things in the Bible, and it's not true with some of the things in the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm going to, someone's going to read me the riot act at the end of the day for carrying on this long. I'm going to wrap it up here in just a few minutes. I got some takeaways for you, okay? <clears throat> My main point is this. Um, Genesis says nothing about how God created the world in any scientific sense, but it says everything about why. And going back to a verse like this, you know, there's the whole issue of ex nihilo creation, and those are good conversations to have. And I don't want to swat down any of that. Uh, I'm simply saying this is another way to interpret the original Hebrew that I believe is, is valid. Um, the Bible's not at odds with science and its description of nature and natural history. Now, some science may be completely errant and hostile. But in terms of what the world is telling us, I think one of the questions you have to ask is... Um, did God give us this observable world and cosmos as, because it, as a gift to us that we can learn from it? Or are we being deceived by it? That's one of the big questions that I'm not going to answer today. In other words, you know, when we look out with telescopes, are we looking at something real? Are we looking at you know, burning balls of gas, you know, billions of light years away? Or is it all an illusion? And if it's true, what does it mean about how we understand space and time and all of those things? The Genesis account is about cosmic and human origins, and it describes these things in some figural and figurative ways. Here are a few takeaways. I've got more notes. I just, I can't go on and on and on. I'm sorry. Here's what I think we should take away from, from today, Okay. Number one, there is a creator who at some point in primordial history brought all things into being. That is non-negotiable. That is, the, the creed gives us that, scripture gives us that. There is a creator who brought it all into existence. How exactly he did that, we don't know. Scientists don't know. We can speculate, they can speculate, we can all speculate. What we do know as people who the inner testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit lives, is that there is a creator who at some point created all things. Number two, the creation story teaches us about the creator, not the scientific process of creation. That is the main purpose of the creation story in Genesis. It is telling us something about the creator the one who brought it all into existence and why he is worthy of our worship and service and obedience and sacrifice. Because we're all here because of him. Third, we cannot come away from this 
what we've just discussed, thinking that any Christian cannot come away from a discussion about all of these matters and think that this all came to be on its own. We are not left that option. We don't have that option. However you wanna modify your view, right? There is a, a certain view of evolution, maybe the, the, the preponderance of voices in that community that say all of it was random mutation, random chance. And we would have to say, or a person who is trying to grapple with it, if that is one's position, would have to say, well, no. <clears throat> if God chose that means of bringing the worlds about, that it was God all along who had baked within all of the matter of the universe, the DNA for its development and possibilities of what it now is. And fourth, and this is the last takeaway, the creation, this is what we should discern and understand, the creation is good. It all came from God. And without him, none of this would be here. Again, in closing, a final statement here. We're not trying to accommodate the Bible to science. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to read the Bible well. And I've just barely scratched the surface. In fact, I could make this whole hard sayings of the Bible. I mean, I could go on for weeks and months just about the first few chapters of Genesis. I'm not gonna do that. And if I don't get any questions back, any, I mean, feel free to push back. Uh, if I don't get anything back, I'm just gonna move on to the next sermon, okay? But if I get, you know, several or half a dozen, Jordan, what about this? Your word said this and it seems, then we'll, next week we'll, we'll cover it, okay? So um, I'm excited. And I hope I have not like driven a wedge between people in our congregation. Um, I want us to read the Bible well, and if scripture is our authority above everything else, we should start there, and that's what I tried to do today, is start in scripture, and consider if there is anything in the text itself that requires us to believe a particular view. So um, let's just pray. I don't have like a flowery ending with some Christological trajectory. I just wanna say, um, Thanks for hearing me out. Thanks for sticking around. I know I've gone over time. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator. You create all things. And it makes sense that um, it hasn't been very long since the resurrection. It's only been 2,000 years. And who knows how much more we will understand in another 1,000 years if you should tarry and not return. Father, one, one thing we want to celebrate is that you made us and that you made all things. And that whatever the process of your bringing all things into being was, we thank you for it. We thank you, O oh God, that you are our creator and maker and you're eternal. And you, O oh God, have shed and poured out your grace and mercy upon us. And Father, help us to come together and even if we disagree, to do it in love and work through some of those questions uh, in a spirit of unity, bond of fellowship, in Christ's name we pray, amen.